We're going to talk about racism and white privilege. It's the thing I care about most. I think it's the number one problem in the world. And if we don't solve it, we're going to have a hard time solving climate change, too. I think it affects everything. Wendy Apperson is a friend of mine from way back when we both worked in a little telco before the dot-com bust. (laughs) Wendy is a co-founder of Transforming Privilege, a company dedicated to providing resources and spaces for those learning about their own privilege, white supremacy, and racism. I decided to give her a call, reconnect with her, and talk a bit about what she's been doing. Wendy's profile on transformingprivilege.com starts with, Wendy started her anti-racism journey in 2018 after a string of school and mass shootings in the United States. As she learned more about the history of racism in the United States, she discovered that her previous decade of studying and integrating learnings about relationships, intimacy, vulnerability, and trust was preparing her to tackle the most important issue facing the United States, racism and white supremacy. Now quoting Wendy, while anti-racism work isn't personal development work, we have to do personal development work to be actively anti-racist. And here now with me is Wendy Apperson. Wendy, thank you so much for chatting with me. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Lyle. It's so happy to see yeah, you it's, too. It's a blast. Listeners can't see you, but I get to see you. What a treat. It's a treat to see you as well. And your hair is redder than I remember. Well, that's because it's covering gray. <laughs> no, it's it's Let's it's bonded honest. with gray. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've been we've, you know, stayed connected as you do with people nowadays through social media. And we do see each other every decade or so to say hi. But (laughs) I've been following your Instagram posts. And in 2019, after George Floyd, and we had um, a lot of upheaval in our society about racism, I started noticing your posts were very much pay attention to race and pay attention to privilege and how you can be better. And as a, I assume, cis white woman, I almost took umbrage to it. I was like, why, why is she talking right now? What right does she have to speak up? And I think that was kind of directed to myself feeling very, not feeling like I could do very much. So what is a white cis guy? What, what, now that we're talking in a public forum as two white people, what's our responsibility? Our, how do we not be complete assholes? What, what do we do here? Help me. I love the way you phrase that. What right does she have to speak up? And I think the right is that I need to speak to my people. All my other white friends, family, co-workers, uh, people in community, um, that's the right I have. They're my people. We're all each other's people. Um, But I I think that the message needs to come um, not just from people who are dealing with the harm of othering and racism, Um, but the people who are perpetrating it and are becoming aware that they are doing the harm and want to uh, stop doing that. (laughs) We need to stop doing that. So it's sometimes uh, there are inappropriate places for me to speak up as a white cis woman. Um, 
but I think there's a lot of appropriate ways. And it's one of the reasons that Jamie and I are partnership and equal partnership. Who's Jamie? Jamie is the co-founder, my co-founding partner in Transforming Privilege. She's an African-American woman who lives in Seattle here with me. And uh, we met working together 20 years ago. So we've been friends a long time. But our friendship has deepened as a result of my doing this work because we're able to have more honest, vulnerable, more deeply connecting conversations. I'm safer to her now. That's a big deal. So when I speak out and say I'm doing this work, that actually is a signal to her that, oh, Wendy's aware of things she wasn't aware of a long time ago. She said that to me. Um, What were you not aware of a long time ago? Oh, um, microaggressions is a term, term that gets thrown around a lot. Um, it, it's commonly thought of as a slight or a small thing, micro in the name. But they're actually pretty violent things. And when endured over and over again, it causes trauma. And I certainly was unaware and then also aware of some of the things I said and did were microaggressions to people that I knew in high school. Um, and I, I don't remember being called out (laughs) for them or called in publicly or privately. Uh, but I, I do now recognize what I said and what I did was, was so harmful, was so hurtful. And, um, I didn't have a vocabulary. I'm trying to think of all the things I've learned in the last four years. I didn't have a vocabulary to talk about this. It's like any area of expertise. Um, it's a new area for most of white Caucasian America because we're not taught about our history, the whole United States history in school. And so learning your history, learning the vocabulary, um, and then kind of understanding the examples of how we individually participate in this. And then in all of our ver- all of our environments, how our individual pieces of it create these systems and institutions um, that further racism as a whole on a society, societal level. I'm going to poke at something because I feel like if I don't, I'm, I, I think there's one thing that concerns me about. I definitely, by the way, am, am familiar with the term um, microaggression, and I definitely get the idea of it that you can say something small, hence the idea of micro, that is actually harmful and doing it over and over again really adds up to a lot of harm. But I, you use the term violence and I I have a problem with calling language violence. There's something, I mean, I agree that being a jerk and speaking inappropriately and hurting people can all be done vocally. I don't think that there needs to be violence, but I think violence is different in the sense that it's a physical act. Am I wrong there? What am I missing? Yeah, I, I see the distinction you're trying that you're you're making there. I, I don't know if it's and important. What by I the would way. say to that, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, but. no. I I think a lot of people would try to make that distinction, and um, what I would how I'd respond to that is that there is emotional violence, there's emotional abuse, and there's physical abuse. Those kinds of abuses are not interchangeable; they're not the same, but they um, produce traumatic experience that's that's very hard to move past move through 
you, you translated, so. as we were talking, you translated violence into abuse. And I don't disagree with abuse. I think that microaggressions are abuse. I think that that's a totally valid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, verbal abuse is perfectly, you know, and entrapment and, and threat of violence, all of those types of abuse. That, and that's the thing is that a threat of violence is kind of a violence by itself. So I definitely see that um, without hitting or without you know, physically touching people, you can be violent because you can threat violence. And that's the same thing. Uh, or that's very similar. So cool. We're in the same page now. I don't, I don't have a big problem. With it. <laughs> I don't want to dive into this because I don't want to detract from the actual point here is that our words matter and we can be really mm-hmm. ignorant to what our words are doing if we're not educated to that point. And it shouldn't be the responsibility of the person that's getting abused by your language to tell you, hey, fix that. It should be all of our responsibility to learn how not to be in that way and be abusive to people. So that's why it's behovent upon um, the people that are actually doing the speaking and doing the, the abusive language uh, to learn about it. And call each other. On. Yeah. And call each other on it. I think that's a big piece of it. Um, it is. I don't want to go into examples that are that are microaggressions against people that aren't in the in the room together, you and me. So can we use some examples for just each other? And that way um, you'd have to translate into other things. But earlier I said, oh, you've got red hair now. And what I'm doing there is I'm aging you, right? Well, I didn't know I was aging you. Oh, yeah. I, my daughter has well, red hair, yeah. too, and she's 17. But <laughs> as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, what did I just do there? That's not cool. Um, so is that kind of that for I mean, this is much lighter. And of course, you know, is that kind of like that? Well, it's interesting. Your example for me is hair, because that is actually a big, a big category of microaggressions um, for people of color. Um, but... Pointing out the other? Pointing out um, that I'm older could have been a sensitivity for me and at some point might be. <laughs> but I'm rolling with it right it de- now, so it's cool. It depends on how I'm feeling. It can definitely be a sensitivity to me, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that we could do it with uh, my hair color. As a white cis woman, my hair color really doesn't matter. Even if it were gray, it probably wouldn't matter. I think you'd have to do it about something that indicated my status as a minority, mm, yeah. my status as, uh, and have that be demeaning in so some way. I find that when we're talking right? about this, gender is an, an easier one to exemplify because we all, I'm assuming, are aware of our sexism inherently because of the society we grow up on. You know, if you're not aware of that, of course, you can take fantastic tests that kind of show your inherent bias around gender. Um, so you'll, you'll go through tests and you'll figure out that you lean to the idea that doctors are male. Like that's kind of built into us in our society. I've, it's a humbling experience. So we could use, you know, gender example. So if I made jump some comment about your gender, when we're in a business situation, I'm basically, that's kind of a microaggression. Is that getting closer? Yeah, it is. I would actually, because we know each other, uh, you, and you know that I'm bisexual, we could use yeah. that because that is um, an area that is um, one of my very few <laughs> um, less privileged areas of my life. And if you had said something like, um, oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've had lots of boyfriends and girlfriends over the years since I saw, since I saw you last. Tell me about that, Wendy. Mm, okay. 
there are other ways to ask yeah. how my love life yeah. is, which you know is horrible. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Except this gorgeous cat right here who <laughs> wants to be on camera too. Um, yeah, I think there, it, it really is all about how the curiosity is being communicated. I mean, I think you're curious that my hair's a little lighter. That there's a modesty in that. Am I going to take that badly? No. Um, if you were going to ask me about my love, you know, that would be harder (laughs) to talk about because that hits a little bit harder to my core. So this has to do with me understanding you well enough to know if something I said would be hard for you. So that's the part. I think that's true between us. I I think when you talk about, uh, racial microaggressions, that's not true. There are some things you can know, whether you know the person or not, that you, you really can't talk about. Don't touch or talk about a black woman's hair. That's not appropriate. As if you want to ask her a question, you can ask her if she will, you know, could talk to you about it, but don't comment right. on it. And this um, is because it's systemic in our society, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know if the example works. I know it's a hard one. It's that I've never tried that, that uh, thought experiment before. That's fascinating. Well, I'm doing it mostly because I think that we really can lean into empathy. We've got this magic ability to understand how other people feel. It happens because we're human. And anytime you're feeling like it's hard to understand another point of view, put your empathy into it and you'll get there. Like it, it helps. And so that's why I kind of, and it's a hard one to do, of course, because you don't really know what another person's life is like. So it's easier in a moment, right? It's easy when you see someone suffering, when they're crying or, you know, a, a car has hit them and they're hurt or, um, you, you know, they just had a spat with somebody and you kind of witnessed it. Then your empathy kicks in pretty quickly and pretty easily. But in some ways, I think part of the privilege is that you don't see the actual harm. So you, it's hard to empathize with it. It's very tricky. It is. Um, in the moment, I think it's nearly impossible if you're unaware of what you're saying is harmful. Um, and because it usually they are seen as such a small thing independently that someone of color can't speak up and say, Hey, that that's really not cool because then it sounds, it seems like they're being overly sensitive. Right. Right. And then it puts the onus on them to prove harm. Which is also emotional labor and maybe on top of the microaggression that they just experienced is something they don't want to do, understandably. So we've talked so a little bit I, about some of the stuff we can do. Talk to me a bit about mm, what, what uh, Transforming Privilege is doing. Are you doing classes with people or what, what kind of things are you doing to help? Yeah, we're doing we We just launched a workshop today, our very first workshop, which is really exciting. Um, we're... Uh, it, we're partnering, we collaborated with um, a coach for parents of LBGTQ youth and their parents and race, so the intersectionality of queer black kids, usually. She's uh, a Nigerian immigrant. She was a U.S. veteran. Her name's Dr. Lulu. Um, and um, she's a pediatrician with 30 years of clinical experience as well. Um, and a suicide prevention expert. Wow. And she's so running the she's workshop. She's been working with parents a very long time. Yeah. 
Um, so we're, we're, we just launched that workshop today, which is very exciting. And we have a monthly speaker series called Transformation in Action. And we have someone come on the first Thursdays of every month and speak to the community. And we sell tickets to both the workshop and the speaker series so that we can fund compensating both the speakers, the workshop coaches, and our discussion group uh, coaches, which are long-form book uh, discussion groups. One of them, me and white supremacy runs for a year, for instance. So it's not just read the book, get together once and talk about it. It's, it's over a longer period of Reading time. Reading multiple books and talking about them? No, one, well, one book, book really diving talking in. About. Uh, so one chapter at a time. So you're diving in pretty deep. Why is it important and to pay everybody? It's important to compensate people of color for their labor when they're talking about racism. It's important to compensate them for their labor all the time <laughs> because of how this country started. But especially now, it's important to compensate them for their labor as they educate everybody about racism and anti-racism and othering in general. Yeah. Good. I, I heard that in your voice when you said that we pay, we take that money and we pay the it's people really who speak. Yeah, it sounded like it. Really important to us. Yeah. So we have a couple of things that uh, take money to attend, but we also have the discussion groups and we have a community on Facebook at the moment until we can find a better platform. But that seems to be appropriate for us right now. Why do you roll your eyes at Facebook? <laughs> um, I don't like I, I, I don't like <clears throat> supporting the ecosystem with my with my group, the people I care about. But they're on there with their friends and family already. And it's it's a way to get their attention and have them participate. We discuss articles. People post questions. We're there to support and hold each other accountable in that community. So it's it's not a bad place because they're already there. I haven't found another place like that yet. So You'd mentioned that yeah. um, you're good friends with your partner and, were, and have been for 20 years or friends with your uh, partner of this organization for 20 years. What ha- How has your relationship changed as you have become more aware of systemic racism, um, white privilege. How's it, what, what's happened? What happened early on? Um, well, early on we had a different, um, very first time I, she worked for me. I was her manager for a year and a half, maybe not that long. And then we became friends and, um, and she moved to France and went to graduate school and got her MBA and lived there for eight years and then came back. Um, so a lot has happened in that 20 years and our, the power dynamic shift and we're equals. Now she has two kids. I don't have any kids. So she has a lot of experiences that I, I've never had. The cat just just in and, front of the screen. Uh, yes, yeah, that's great. Cat, cat really wants to be a part of the conversation. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure why she put up with me for that long. I think there was always an element of trying to be authentic. So I was always striving to be authentic with her. I think that's, um, in a new level of depth, I'm, I'm much more willing to be vulnerable and share, um, now, uh, than I was 20 years ago, but even then I was willing to do that. Um, I had a string of, uh, not so successful relationships and she had, she had opinions about them. And while she was supportive, uh, she let me know her opinions. And 
I value those opinions more after doing this work. Um, it's because I can see that she sees the real thing all the time. She has not deluded herself about anything. And I know that I grew up deluding myself about a lot of things. Can you give an example, speaking um, of being vulnerable, of something you've deluded well, yourself about? Yeah, I think the depth of my friendships, I've always thought they were deeper than they were. I really cared about people, but I thought that was mutual. And it wasn't always mutual. Sometimes it was nearly almost mutual, but not always. And that was a real shock to really see that and be okay with it. And then to make decisions about what kind of friends do I want to have in my life? Where do I want to put my energy? How am I living my values? Um, how have so, how have you, I'm, I'm assuming from that, you decided that some people you wanted to be closer with, how did you create relationships that were closer? What did it involve for you? Um, sometimes it, it, it involved uh, coming clean about, hey, we never really talked about this or that. And that's still stuck in my head. And I feel bad about that. Oh, I forgot it, whatever. Uh, well, I'd like to still talk about it. Um, other times, it's making sure that I check back in and understand what their needs are about the relationship. All friendships don't have to be um, symmetrical. Your needs don't have to be the same to be in the friendship, right? One person can need certain things and another, any relationship. Um, the other person can need other things. But if you don't know what that person needs and how you can share, share with them, show them that, that you care about them, you aren't doing it well for them. <laughs> so checking in and making sure that I understood what their needs were was really important. And... Um, you know, COVID has been rough this whole time, but I've had to get out of my little narcissistic bubble about all the stuff I've experienced. And it, I've had a hard few years. I lost both my parents in the last year. So that's been hard. And I got divorced. You know, everybody's been having hard things. Everybody's carrying a burden. But unwinding myself from that has been really important. Also, it helps me feel better not focus on my stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. Am I answering your question now? Yeah. Perplexed. I just feel like that every time I ask questions, there's more questions to ask, but that's a good thing. That means... <laughs> Why don't you ask me a question? <laughs> well, um, what made you think of doing a daily podcast? Cause that is, that is a commitment, my friend. I know how much work goes into this. What, where did this idea come from? I, I feel like I've said this a lot because um, sometimes when I interview someone, I tell them all that first. And then when it's going to publish mm. it, I pull all that out because I feel like I've told the audience. But I have no idea if I've told anybody. Um, but I think maybe the very first episode I told my sister, Adrian, I kept it on the, in the edit. Um, years ago, I was at uh, UCS, University of California, Santa Cruz, in a digital arts new media program. There were a lot of really interesting, creative people. And one of them, Nick Hanselman, who graduated with MFA and then moved off to New York and worked at uh, Times Magazine on the interactive stuff, or uh, New York Times on the interactive stuff. He said, hey, there's this thing going on in Oakland. You do a piece of creative work every day for January, and then in February we'll have a show. And so that year I was like, oh, cool, I'll make a digital art thing. So I made like a Java thing, and then the next year I did it again, the next year I did it again. And I've never done... I, I've done watercoloring a photo of, of, 
a flower every day, you know, watercolor every day. I've done portrait every day. My portrait every day was in 2011 and I did it all of January and then I did it the entire year. And the rule I made is I couldn't have the same portrait twice, same person twice. I think I have a couple holes in the days. Like one day is like a statue that I took a picture of because I couldn't find a person to photograph. And what it does, you know, lots of people make, um, New Year's resolutions. You know, I'm going to stop eating or I stop eating you know, bad food or I'm going to run every day. Whatever the thing is, you kind of think about. And I think it's partially that, at least in this most of American culture, we kind of quiet down during the end of December. There's like a quiet period where with family, we're thinking about things like that. And I think that produces this ability to kind of be retrospective of like, what do we want to be different? And so the new year, of course. So I think the problem with New Year's resolutions is that you pretty much will fail. Because who you are is not going to change because a date changed. It's much more hard than that. It's a, it's a, it's a long progression. Change is long. And so instead of doing a New Year's resolution with that energy of wanting myself to be different, I go, well, what action can I do that I can maintain that will cause an effect on me long term? And so that's what it is. You can say, well, I'll do a creative thing because I know that that at least does something to me. I don't know what it does to me, but it does something being creative. I'll do that for a period of time. I can achieve it. A month seems like a good amount of time. Sure. And then go. I would urge people, though, when you do this, <laughs> to not <laughs> decide that you're going to do a five-hour thing every day. Because that is really hard. And I say yeah, that because a couple of these episodes have been five deal. hours of work every day. And that's not sustainable for me or my family. So, so Wendy, yeah. this is not going to be edited very much. We're going to finish recording and I'm just going to slap some music in the front, maybe say something about who you are and then slap music at the end and that's it. Cool. <laughs> I love it. Can I ask you more? Sure. Cause I, can I ask you more about how your life has been in the yeah. last eight years? What is bringing you joy? What do you, what do you love right now? You're talking about being creative, which I know is so much a part of you. Well, it's hard to think of the last eight years, um, but in the last few years, especially during COVID and thinking about society and how broken it seems since um, our former pre- the former president was elected and in office and the split in the schism in the United States and the kind of threat against democracy, that space has been, um, the big piece for me has been that for the last 20 years, I have talked about how awesome technology is in a very optimistic way on my radio show. And... What feels like the culmination of that awesomeness is this split, broken, bad communication, a lack of a cohesive belief in truth and a fight. And it seems like that is mostly the side effect of, I mean, uh, one of my guests suggested that it's also cable, it's cable televisions taking our time to think. I think that was John that suggested that, that we're so trapped in the moment of getting more and more and more and more information that we don't actually stop to think about what we want in life and how we want things to be different and have conversations with the people and then check in with the news cycle again like it used to be. And the secondary piece of this, of course, is algorithmic systems specifically designed to take our time and energy and take advantage of the bugs in the human system, um, aggression and anger as a means of motivation and shock and frustration as these really powerful ways of motivating people to then translate that, that into taking their time and making conflict. And that is being empowered by tech. So as someone for 20 years has been saying how great technology is and understand it pretty well, and now seeing side effects of that, I'm going, well, how do I spend my time and energy 
such that I help make the problem better. And for a while, it was like, I'll start a software company or I'll join one of these endeavors to replace Facebook with some other thing. But as I look at that, what comes down over and over again is the way our financial systems work supports this model that Facebook's successful financially, right? It's almost like capitalism and Facebook's output is similar in the sense that it's powered by maybe capitalism. I don't want to break up capitalism because I think it has a lot of good. So then you go, well, what can you do? You can't replace it. Um, So hence conversations about this kind of stuff. So that's how I'm doing. How's that? That's, that's a lot. (laughs) I have so many questions now. What part of that is the joy? The conversations is the joy part of that. Yeah, you asked for joy, and, and I answered all the pain and, and trouble and, and responsibility I feel I have, um, especially as a privileged person. Um, mm-hmm. I, think, I think the joy, yeah, it, it's easy for me to say, well, my kids are getting older and they're getting excited about school out of, out of high school, and you know, my, my son's in this band, he's playing all the time and has a great time, and there's tons of joy in my life in that regard. Um. But I, I went to that about responsibility because I don't know. It, I don't know if it's really responsibility, but it feels like I want to be doing things that make the be- the world better. And it feels like when you're in a place of privilege, it's like, well, that match. You, you've got to do more. <laughs> like I think that's that's what it's about. I don't know. Yeah, and that word privilege has a lot of weight now. Um, It's not just racial privilege or gender privilege or, you know, there are so many different ways to be privileged. (laughs) Um, I had parents that were married for 60 years, 59 years, and then my dad died on their 60th wedding anniversary. Oh, that's horrible. I'm so sorry. Little, you know, it was a little over a year after my mom passed. He had, he broke one hip six weeks after she died. And not from COVID, Alzheimer's. And then on my birthday this year, he fell and broke the other hip. And when you're over 80 and you break a hip, apparently it's 50% mortality. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Not good chances. So the first one he recovered from and the second one he didn't. And um, it took a few days. He didn't really come out of the anesthesia from uh, the hip replacement. And, um, And then we moved him back to his assisted living room and I was there by his side and I was holding his hand the way I've been doing for the last five years and it was a really intimate moment to be there with him and then realizing afterwards that it was their anniversary because it hadn't occurred to me yet that day it was just shocking how, how, what's the privilege of that, of being with your father or of having your parents? Oh, the, the privilege is that I had two parents my whole life. And um, I don't know how they made their marriage work, but they did. <laughs> it worked for them. Yeah. To see that that works out is something um, that I have that hopefulness. Maybe it makes me a romantic or what, however you want to describe it, but... It's a privilege to have that optimism Mm -hmm. about relationship and about commitment and um, caring about somebody through all the change that can happen in your life for 60 years. That's a long time. It's pretty magical. So 
I, I think that outlook really shaped me in a lot of ways. Did it make you um, too optimistic? Yeah, I'm sure it did. <laughs> Jamie would think so in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, she thinks I wear some rose-colored glasses, some very thick rose-colored glasses. <laughs> you know, I I think that's part of what drew me to want to talk to you, um, because I kept on seeing your posts, and I thought, what hubris to be able to change what we're doing. But when I looked at that and was like, I keep thinking about this. I need to talk to Wendy about this because I know you as a very capable and, you know, powerful person, successful person and in good communicators, all those things from 20 years ago, but also I've known your career a bit since then. And so I'm thinking, well, no, she's obviously doing something and you've got a problem. You got to hear about it. So what do you think about that? This idea that I was thinking this is hubris or too much optimism. Or oh, I'm that. sure most of the people who see me post on Instagram or other social media are, are just shocked to see me a care about it and B think that I have something to say about it. Um, I lost my train of thought there. It might come back. Okay. I'm not eating sugar these days, so it comes back a little quicker. I must, <laughs> Has I sugar must say affected sugar. your memory or your recall? <laughs> it absolutely I, I think it really did. I think my uh, my memory and my brain is much less cloudy as a result. Um, How's your sleep? Uh, sleep is better too, but I've been working on that for a long time. Sleep hygiene has been important. Yeah. Um, yes, that's it's super important because sleep deprivation is torture. I mean, it makes everything harder. I don't know how people function when they had chronic insomnia. It, it was very hard for me. I had it for about two and a half years. I think so. one of the things I'm realizing in this conversation that's so nice is that lots of times when I'm talking about uh, systemic racism, privilege, all those qualities, I'm speaking with somebody that's in a different uh, privilege stack or whatever uh, than I am. Or I'm in like a company-wide thing where I'm getting like a training and I've read some materials and I'm listening to talks. And when I decide to talk, I'm going, okay, am I doing that whole, you know, white cis guy where I talk before anybody else? I should watch myself. And there's a lot going on there. Um, And so there's something kind of nice about being able to talk very openly with somebody about this without feeling like I'm taking advantage of that person in bringing up the topic. Like you don't want to be in a situation where like, oh my gosh, you know, we we had another horrible, violent thing from police officers to black people. I should go talk to my black friend about it. Like that's the that's not the right way to deal with it, right? So, no. I think that's an interesting. I hadn't really thought about that starting until I started to talk with you. But you can check in with them. Oh yeah, you can say how you doing. I know that must have been hard for you to see that video. Sure. The checking in, don't the offering support. Tell them. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't ask them to educate. That's you the point. Yes. It's what the heck. Happened. It's that the, yeah. they're responsible to, to educate me. Yeah. Own. Okay. So talk more about yeah. that. Why is that so important? Again, it's emotional labor. Um, as uh, we are both white identifying Americans in this country, we have been at the we have been the people perpetrating, not us personally, you know, in history, but our ancestors certainly were perpetrating that harm over and over and over again. And um, there, there's plenty of resources for us to learn about our history and learn about why it's important that we care about police officers putting 
their knee on someone's neck or on their back or, you know, all the other examples. I am thinking about Tamir Rice, so I'm losing my train of thought again because that's that's the one that really gets me. And it's the example with George Floyd was stunning and shocking to watch him look into the video camera. He did. He knew he was being videotaped and he didn't care. Derek Chauvin did not care. Um, really, really shocking. And we didn't have that outrage and it's understandable why everybody lost their mind. We, we absolutely had to stand up and say something. And it, it was on top of many, many other people, Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and many others that had happened just before that. But several years before that was this young man, this young boy. He wasn't a man. He was a young boy. He was 12 yeah. years old in Baltimore. How He was playing in a park. I think it was Cleveland. How did it was Cleveland, that, Ohio, but Oh, was it Cleveland? I thought it was Baltimore. But in, in any case, anyway, he's playing at a park. In any case, he's kid. playing in a park. How did that not get every American on their feet? And and what happened was a police officer drove up and said and, and Tamar had a, a toy gun. Very clearly a toy gun. And the police officer came and said, don't just stop, drop whatever, and shot within like 0.4 seconds of saying what he said. So, and killed, yeah. killed this young boy. Um, that was like nine years ago, eight years ago or so. Yeah. 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 So your question is, why isn't this important all the time? Why us? isn't it important to everybody else? You asked me, why do I have the hubris to speak up? I feel, I feel some shame, personal shame. And then I also feel good guilt, you know, like, um, that's going to make, it's going to motivate me to actually change my actions. It's what you were just talking about with being aware of who you are in a room, in a meeting, and that you need to be aware of how you're interacting with people. You learned that. Oh yeah. I mean, right? t- not, not so learn- someone, lear- someone taught, someone you. <laughs> taught me that that's a better way to say it. Yes, absolutely. Someone taught you how to do that. It's really important to learn all those things because most of us didn't grow up learning that. I, I work in tech too, and they're male dominated meetings. I'm still frequently the only woman on a, with many people, many people in the room. I'm still frequently the only woman in the room. And People interrupt each other. And now there's a little starting, you know, with some of my clients, some of the cultures are starting to change where, you know, it's, but really people just talk right over each other. And if you can't get in there, you can't get in there. You don't have a seat at the table. It's amazing. And shocking. When, when you actually start practice idea of not interrupting people, like I just interrupted you, of course, obviously, but video chat no, adds good. another level of complexity, <laughs> um, that when you're in a room of people and you get to the point where you understand that talking over each other isn't actually as effective things get easier like the whole thing gets more effective like the whole communication gets more effective when we're talking in tech you know for the people that aren't in that tech space you know we're talking about pretty complicated problems a lot of people have little bits of information and it's never a situation where one person's like let me tell you what's happening it's more like there's five people in the room everyone has a really complicated thing that they know how to interact kind of and everybody else is kind of talking about it so you need really good communication to make it effective and if you're yelling at each other 
like you said, the quiet voice gone, right? Mm-hmm. And if there are other power dynamics, like race, or um, other things that you know, seniority, ageism, ableism, there's a lot going on in a in a corporate workplace. If those are going on in the room, and you're not paying attention to those power dynamics, that's that's where things get into the area where they can be harmful rather than just irritating. I'm just, I'm just mentioning something that's irritating. It's not harmful to me. I want to make that clear. <laughs> You're using I'm, it as an example because you can speak from a I personal experience. It as an right. example. Yes. Yeah. And I think, and that's actually kind of why I use uh, gender as a, as an example. And it's just an easier thing to talk about in some ways though that means I end up talking about a lot of examples of gender. And I think that's because I don't have a, pers- it's harder for me to have a perspective of other issues that are emerging. It's kind of obvious when you've got four people in the room and one person's a woman and she says something. And then five minutes later, a mi- the next sentence, a guy says the exact same thing and he gets comments on it. That becomes extremely transparent when you pay attention to it. So uh, I guess one of the things is that it, it is hard to see this stuff until you're brought to mind of it. Yeah, so we, we talk about that a lot. The idea that all of this is invisible until it's not. And then you see it everywhere, in and everything. And people think you're a little crazy for a while because you keep seeing it and pointing it out. And they're like, that's not that. That's something else. And we're like, no, actually, that's white supremacy at work. Can you give me an example? Right there. That's privilege. Um, I don't know. I'm <laughs> having a hard time remembering the last time I had one of those aha moments. Um, maybe about something you said and you realized later. Well, we had a, we had a transformation action, uh, event last week and the woman was really, she was very, very interesting. She's a curator and co-founder of a group called Wanawari in Seattle. And it is a community-based, um, land trust where they're trying to use arts and culture to fight gentrification. So they're trying to build up trust to build land. And then, um, I don't even know how, how land trusts work, but you separate the land value from the building that's on top of the land. And then different people have to pay property taxes. So basically people are getting priced out of the market. They own a house, but they don't have the property tax, um, because it's very expensive. So the inequality of the school systems there in our, in our state is because we don't have income tax. That was the last aha moment I had. It was last week. And I had already heard, I had already always heard the income tax was more progressive than sales tax. And that's because, you know, you're, you're taxing on, uh, income rather than consumption. And that, um, so, <laughs> I'm not even explaining this very well. You might have to take this out. No, I think you're doing fine. So you're, you're in okay. um, you're in Washington, and Washington doesn't have income yeah. tax. We don't. We, okay, we, but your, we don't. is your we sales don't. tax higher? It's yeah. It's probably t- it's ten percent. I don't know if it's higher than California though. Uh, California's uh, nine point five or eight point five. Yeah, so it's a, it's about the same. Yeah, um, but property taxes are really high. And that's how the school systems get funded. So not only are they shut, are people being priced out or, um, I don't even know if that's the right way. It's not priced out. It's taxed it's, out. They already, 
they're taxed out right. of their own homes so that maybe they grew up in. You grow up in your home and you're in an area and your home value goes up, your home value goes up, your home value goes up. And during that time, the a, a county assessor can assess the value of your house as higher and higher. So your taxes get higher and higher without anything happening except being there. So yeah. you didn't move to an area that's richer. You didn't do any action except for live in your home. And slowly over time, the county basically wants more taxes. And of course... Yep. The financial motivation of the county getting more taxes means they get to produce more services and all those things. And if the property value is that value, it logically makes sense. One of the things I always have trouble with is that it's not like there's actually people intentionally being evil most of the time. Like That's a rarity. It's systems in place that people unwillingly participate in, which are evil. If you want to have the term evil in your vocabulary. I, I think there is something about intention versus impact here, and we can d define evil in a different way, however you want to define that. Um, but I think once you're made aware, and I'm pretty sure that all the tax county people <laughs> assessors are, yeah, they all know that this is going on. It's just how the state of Washington has decided to fund schools and other services that are needed, and you know, not by an income tax and not equally from one town or one county to another. Oh, that's for even sure, worse. Right. right? So education is based on where you live and how those how the property taxes are being allocated to education in that in that area. Now, so that'll be very different from one area to another. Why is that systemic? Why is that racism and not uh povertyism? Like why why associate it with um racial structures rather than financial, you know, income structures. So there is a large correlation. There's a very high correlation between those things, but not all poor people are minorities. And in this country, actually, uh, the majority of poor people are white in, in the country of the United States. Um, so that's, so it's really, so what you're asking why it's racism instead of why is it classism? Um, I think it's both things for sure. But when you see who it's disproportionately hurting, who are the people who have to move out? Who are the people who have attend schools that are less well-funded? Those statistics are really clearly along racial lines. Got it. Okay. And so, for example, uh, in that yeah. city that's doing that, like I'm in B Seattle, um, that's that has this high tax uh, income thing. You're seeing that much more of the people that are getting evicted from their homes are wrong racial lines versus uh, class lines comparatively to class balances of percentages and things. Is that yeah, and there's, I mean, around real estate, there are so many racist po um, policies and structures in place. In, in you know, everybody's now probably read about redlining and yeah, I mean, how that perpetuated. I about, segregation and I've, transportation and all these yes. other things were designed um, to keep people in their place and not be able to achieve. And go ahead. Yeah. And, and I, I was just going to bring the example of the, the home that I'm sitting in right now. The deed itself, because it's old enough property, had a line in there about only selling to whites. Right. That's in the deed. Actually, it wasn't in the deed house. Last house, I did. this deed, I think, actually been modified. You can, of course, get it rewritten. But because these things are long-term documents, they sustain, they're there. They're not legal um, at this point, of course. They're, that's not legal. But it's already caused the effect, right? Because if you count my neighbors, a lot of people got their home from their family. 
right? That's how they got here. Uh, or I should say, that's how, why they have a home here. So definitely still has an effect. Um, when you talk for, and you know, we could go into a lot of those examples. I think that's, I think it's, I'd rather get into the personal experience of what it's being, what it's like to change and how do you make the state, how do you figure out, how do you see your bias? How do you see your privilege? How do you make changes to try to do things better without being a jerk about it and with being successful? I don't know if I'm doing it without being a jerk about it. I think sometimes I am being a jerk about it. Uh, I hope I'm inviting people to tell me when I am. Um, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. I think that's the biggest part. Um, one of the when I talk about doing the personal work before the anti-racism work, and I I would not have been successful at all with the anti-racism work without some personal growth work before. The perfectionism was so deeply ingrained. I grew up in New England, in Connecticut, and there was a right way to do everything. And if I didn't think I was Martha Stewart when I got married, nearly right out of high school, and I really wanted to be Martha Stewart for the first few years of my marriage, that was what I thought was perfection. I was going to to college at the same time, but those ideas of there being only one right way to do something are so limiting and it doesn't leave room to be authentic in any way or to make a mistake and learn from it. That was the first thing I needed to get. Now that I, you know, I shed that quite a while ago, I have a lot more energy for a lot of other things that are so much more important. Wait, how did you shed that? How'd you get rid of that? (laughs) Um, I saw how useless it was and I saw how it was contributing to being in the way of what I really wanted was deep connection. And I can't be deeply connected to somebody if I'm trying to be better than them or be better, um, or be the right way, or I'm policing that in some way. I hurt so many relationships in that way. (laughs) so horrible. I feel, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of sitting in the shame of it right now, so I'm going to say it out loud so I can let it go. Um, but that was a big part of doing this work and letting it go because people will not start doing this work because they want to be right and they want to be a good person. And they think that making these mistakes makes them a racist. Now we talk about the former guy, um, being a racist. Yeah, I think there are still people who are very clearly racist. They believe in white supremacy to their core. Um, but when I do something that's racist, I have a choice to not do something that, to do something different, to do something that's anti-racist the next time. And I have to know what that is. Um, so I'm relying on my community and my deep connections and the people who trust me and when I say I, I want to know, I'm inviting you to tell me, please tell me. But it does require someone to take on the mantle of, oh, I have tendencies that can change and I can actually improve myself. And if you're willing to do that, then it's, it's funny because that's so useful for everything. Because instead yes. of beating yourself up about not being perfect, about not doing the right thing, you go, cool, I could now be a better person if I decide that I will work on this. 
Yeah. And then you don't judge yourself as much. You're more like a transitional being rather than a permanent being. You said anti-racist, and I think that's a really important idea to bring across. What is not being racist versus anti-racist? So there are racist thoughts and policies, and there are anti-racist thoughts and policies. Someone who is not racist, that's a very passive statement. That's just a state, and it's actually a state of being that doesn't actually exist. You're either actively being racist and maybe unwittingly, maybe unknowingly, you are being racist, or you can be actively anti-racist. Um, it's it's about uh, thoughts and ideas that perpetuate the idea of one race being superior over another, dominating another, and then another race is inferior to that race. When that's that's racism. And in anti-racism, all races are equal. When, when you run into somebody, have you run, have you dealt with? I, yeah. Sorry, can I interrupt? Please. You? I'm paraphrasing Kendi, something I learned out of a book, how to be an anti-racist. I just want to say I'm paraphrasing it badly. So go pick up this book and read. He defines everything very, very clearly. So <laughs> I could go pick it up and read it. How to be anti-racist anti by Kendi. Yeah. Ibram X. Kendi. Um, what I was going to ask you, thank you for doing that. Um, I'm, as one, one of the flaws I have as a podcaster, and, and maybe it's because I never work with like a staff of people that help research and all that is um, names. <laughs> I mess up with names all the time. And then research and providing the correct context. I'll say, oh, that movie, that blah, blah, blah. And then you don't really mention the movie, right? Or you do. That's why I was like, you know, checking that it was Cleveland, Ohio, where uh, mm -hmm. uh, Tamara Reese Tamir was Rice. passed away. Yeah, yeah. It was killed. Um, but anyway, I do it badly all the time. So um, in any case, thank you for calling out that book. That's great. That was actually kind of what I was leading up to is this idea of, I think there's two stages to to getting to this place. Once you actually have to understand there's a problem and you've got to look at yourself to do that personal growth to go, I can change myself. I think you have to start there because I think, I mean, it's possible mm -hmm. that if you're dedicated enough without anything else, you could go read how to be, uh, how to be anti-racist and you'll probably get that context. But I think even making the decision to do that means you're acknowledging there's a problem. So how, how do you talk to someone that's like, uh, it's not, it's not that, you know, it's not this big a deal. I, I don't have any money and I'm suffering and I'm not, you know, I'm a white person and I got my job to do and I'm, you know, I have to pay my bills and I've got enough stress in my life. Why are you bothering me? What do you say to that? Yeah, I'd say to that. I'm sure that's very true. And especially now, I'm sure that you're dealing with grief and a whole lot of uncertainty and it's frightening to think that we're going to get this disease and maybe have long-term effects from it. Absolutely, you have all of that going on. Not one of those things is happening because of because you're white. Yeah. And that uh, that helps to give people the idea that it could be worse. Is that the idea, or is that it's more like <laughs> it means that uh, people of color have all of that and racism on top of it <laughs> because of how they look? Yeah. Yeah. And, and 
And we've just decided that because we all look different. You know, that that's the other part of this that we didn't talk about at all and would be another podcast about how race is actually a social construct. It's a set of principles based on appearance that we put in place to support profit and capitalism. And I know you said you don't mind capitalism. I think no, capitalism, I- <laughs> at the very least, needs to be reformed. Um, but in this country, we were born, our capitalist country was born on white supremacy. Right. Absolutely. Um, hmm. Yeah. When I say I don't want to tear down capitalism, I'm, I more mean that I, I have some strong beliefs that this idea of some of our constitutional structures that we have three branches of government that are supposed to be checks and balances. I think these are really, really good ideas. I think they have this, this, they're not operating right now very well. I, I also say that. Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of this is that it's, it's about power and there's all that too. Right. But what I'm saying is that I want to change this. I don't want to be in a situation where I want to tear it down. There's a difference there, right? And and so when I say capitalism, yeah, there's problems in capitalism. Corporates, corporate entities having personhood is a flaw. Like we need to get rid of that. Like they shouldn't be persons. Um, they should potentially represent the interest of people, and those people are the ones that vote, and the people can do things and have free speech. But I don't think corporations have that. That's that seems like a flaw in the system. And we're in a, a really bad situation where. Our media is controlled by corporations, and so it's very hard for us to think outside that box. So I, I bet we're more aligned than you'd think on capitalism being broken, but uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm not advocating for getting rid of capitalism in this, in this country right now. I, I think there do need to be very, very, I think there need to be huge reforms mm. um, to start to mend the harm that's happening on a daily basis. And as for the structure of the government, they were interesting ideas. They were, they came, they were put in place by a bunch of slaveholders that wanted to retain power. And so the fact that, you know, two senators in Wyoming represent 300,000 people and, you know, two senators in California represent how many Tens of millions of people. Millions of people. I can't remember. 60 million people so in California. that system of yeah. equality is out of whack. And also, you know, there's lots of little... The Electoral College was based... You know, you yeah. Know. Yeah. Oh, no. So, I was going to bring up the Electoral College because it's so blatantly yeah. about land ownership. Obvious. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's older. And we have an ability to do things now that's not like it used to be. We really could be... A much more we could potentially have a society that's much more democratic in the sense that even potentially le- letting go of as much representation but actually have direct and the thing is all of that requires a very informed and engaged population and so that's i think also where i go back to these conversations and figuring out how to better yourself is that what we need to like the way to change these things is have the populace decide that needs to change so as as uh, privileged white cis people, myself, I need to spend the time to make sure that other people like myself understand the change they can do. Like that's the piece, that's one of the big pieces of it for me, which is exactly what your organization is doing, right? That's what you're, you're doing, which is fantastic. And we're doing it on an individual and personal level. We're trying to focus on what I personally can do for myself to change myself. I'm talking about me pointing at myself that nobody can see. (laughs) 
what can I do to change how I interact with people? And what, what structures of power do I influence that I can influence in a different way to bring equality and justice and eliminate othering and racism specifically? And people can take a look at what Wendy's been working on, Transforming Privilege. Dot com. Did you hear me jump into my radio voice? Wasn't that fun? Trans, transformingprivilege.com. Uh, Would that be a good place for someone in any part of the States to, to go and, and read up and learn what to do? Absolutely. And if you okay. read English, you can do it anywhere in the world. We, we have an international and integrated, racially integrated community in our Facebook group. So there's invitations to join that group from the website. And uh, there's a there's a part on the home page that says, I think it says, where do I start? So good. That's, that's a perfect good place to start. Transformingprivilege.com. <laughs> Wendy, what is bringing you joy lately? Uh, seeing your beautiful face. I'm so happy <laughs> to reconnect with you. Lyle. honestly, that was, that was amazing. I was, I was sick over, uh, the holidays and I've recovered from that. I didn't have COVID. Um, but I was pretty sick, so I kind of got scared. <laughs> that is scary. <laughs> About actually, yeah, yeah. I don't know how I got sick with COVID, but I'm been so careful. I mean, sick, sick. anyway, right? Because I've been trying to avoid COVID, so that that whole part was pretty scary. But it sounds like we we also didn't. I feel like we're going to wrap up because I, I need to go on to the things that I'm sure you do as well. And it feels like the parts we didn't talk about is the the loss of both your parents and that. I want to talk with you more, more about that. I'm sorry to ask you as your final question, what brings you joy? But um, it's good to see you. And let's have another conversation, maybe mm-hmm. off mic. And uh, All right. That yeah. sounds good. All right. Wendy, <laughs> thank you so much. This is Wendy Apperson. You can read more about transforming privilege and what you can do, uh, especially if you're uh, a white cis person. Do some learning for yourself. It's actually, at first it's hard. And then it becomes like, I don't know. It's like a awakening in some respects. And then you feel pretty good about the change you're making. It actually feels good to do this. It's not just about, it's realizing how bad it is. And (laughs) it feels good that you can start making changes for yourself. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. And that's a little bit of a spiral. You kind of go through those cycles of like, oh, there's a lot. And then, oh, yeah, I'm feeling better. Oh, there's a lot. So it kind of, it kind of goes back (laughs) Stick with it, though. (laughs) You do stick with it. I'm in an up spot right now, if you hadn't noticed. (laughs) Well, you've got your first... first, um... Our first workshop. We're so excited. Yeah, Yeah, it starts February 13th for all parents. That's awesome. All right, Wendy, thank you so much. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Lyle. You can read more about Wendy's work and learn how you can make a change in your life. Transformingprivilege.com. And of course, while you're out and about on the internets, please do subscribe to this podcast. Just go to troxel.com. The name of the show is Lunch with Lyle. Thank you. <laughs>